There are lots of things that get in the way of our ability to successfully handle conflict. They often have to do with a limiting mindset, misidentifying the root cause of a conflict, or not creating a safe environment for feedback or different opinions. The good news is that there's a lot we can personally do to remove those barriers. Our question this episode: What are some simple but powerful ways that we can set ourselves up for better success when we get into interpersonal conflict? Welcome to episode eighty-one of How Can I Say This, where we look to build connection and community through courageous conversations. I'm your host Beth Bilo, and I am really delighted to be with you today. I have a quick reminder before I introduce our guest and move to the conversation. You can access all eighty past episodes at howcanisaythis.com/podcast, as well as through whatever podcasting platform you subscribe to. I recently shared a list on the website of the ten most downloaded episodes so far, and those are a great place to start if you're a new listener. I also want to offer a big thank you to Maria Roman of Sao Paulo, Brazil. She is the CEO and founder of Bloomin English Communication, and she shared how can I say this with her LinkedIn network, writing, "Here are some podcasts to improve your English as well as getting great content." This podcast, How Can I Say This, offers some advice for interpersonal communication challenges. Beth has a nice speech pace, and I believe you will not have much trouble understanding it. The episodes vary from fifteen to thirty minutes, and you may listen while working, doing house chores, or driving. And now that it's spring, at least here in the United States, you can also listen while gardening. It's such a gift to know that someone listening might be improving both their English and their communication skills at the same time. Thank you, Maria, for sharing and for the awesome work that you do. And now on to the main event. My guest today is Alan Heyman. Alan is a leadership and executive coach in the Washington D.C. area. He's a communications and marketing veteran from the media, government, and nonprofit sectors, with degrees in journalism and law. He's worn many hats in his career, including being a reporter, anchor, editor, and producer, spokesperson, business owner, activist, and team leader. His entire career has been focused on doing good in the world by helping others grow. Well, hello, Alan. Welcome to How Can I Say This? I've been looking forward to this conversation. Beth, it's a pleasure to be with you and your listeners today. I'm excited. Thank you. Well, you know, you and I had this lovely conversation talking about this podcast and the different directions we could go. And the first thing that you shared with me that really jumped out was when you said something about people pleasing when it comes to conflict and communication. And we know that it's probably one of the biggest internal obstacles that keeps us from resolving conflict. Can you talk a little bit about people pleasing, and especially how can we tell if we are a people pleaser, and if those tendencies are getting in our way? Yes. Well, I can talk for hours about people pleasing, but I will try not to. How about that? <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, and you know, as with many things that we seek to overcome as leaders, I think it generates from a very genuine, positive place, and. You know, this is something that we learn as children. We're gonna we're gonna be polite. We're gonna say thank you. We're going to acknowledge the gift that we received from our distant relative that was not at all what we wanted, but we're still you know being being polite and being a, a thoughtful member of the family. And as with many things, it can be taken too far. And I say that as somebody who has been dealing with this most of his adult life. So, the question is, for whose benefit 
and, and why are we doing something? And in, in business and in leadership and in work, it feels good to be asked to do things. Mm-hmm. When we have a reputation for quality work and good service and people notice it and they recognize it and they ask us to continue doing what we're good at, that feels good. It feels good to be asked. It's a positive. And so you want to respond to that positive with a positive and say, yes, I, I will do that thing for you. I will do it tomorrow. And I will get it done well, and you will be happy, and I will be happy. Unfortunately, what I have found, both in my own experience as a leader and then as a coach, is that as you climb the levels of leadership, it becomes less and less important to continue doing what other people want and to enact the agendas of others. And it becomes more important to enact your own agenda you set it, you decide what's important, you decide what is worthy of your attention and what needs to be ignored. And that is a challenge if you've come up into your leadership role by pleasing others. Yeah, it's really strange. I have never thought about that before. (laughs) That there's the shift in priorities of whose agenda are you enacting? It's such a simple thing, but we probably spend way more time being told what the agenda is that it becomes so ingrained when we get to the opportunity of saying, this is the agenda, and we get to sort of set it, it's not as comfortable. And we might slip back into people pleasing. For sure. It's, it's easier to fall back on what others expect of us if that's something that we've been doing for our whole adult lives. Mm-hmm. And sometimes people pleasing is not even to the benefit of the person who's asking you for something because they may be asking you for the wrong thing or they may be asking the wrong person. Yeah. And they don't even know it. And sometimes we don't know it. That's right. Because it strikes me that people pleasers probably also tend to fall into patterns of being the hero or, you know, saving the day or the consensus builder, peacemaker. Yes. So lots of ripple effects that can come from that. Absolutely. So you can absolutely get gratification from doing things differently. You can get gratification from surprising and delighting the people that you're working with and the people you're working for. And you can get gratification from saying, no, uh, CEO, uh, what I think you're actually asking me for, uh, based on our history together, is, is this. And I'd rather do that instead so that you actually get what you want here. If you have that trust and that openness to tell the person that what they want is actually something different and you can deliver it to them, that's a whole lot stronger than just going with that initial people-pleasing impulse. Yeah. One of the first things you said was something about taken too far. (laughs) That's what I sketched down. How do you know if you've taken it too far? I think there's a number of ways. One being, uh, if you do this too much and too often, you feel it. There's this sense of, where am I? I'm, I'm lost in this context or in this situation because I'm constantly responsive to the questions and the requests and the desires and needs of other people. So if you're feeling like there's no you in this anymore because it's all about everybody else, that's a clue. Uh, And the other is that if you feel like you do have an agenda and you have priorities and you have things that you feel you are solely responsible for delivering on or, or directing, and that's just not happening because you're buried under incoming requests, emails, Slack messages, whatever it is, that's another surefire sign that if you've had people-pleasing tendencies in the past, you're probably doing it a lot now. Mm, Yeah. So if we notice that, what steps can we take to uh, overcome that? Well, I think the first step in in any given situation like that is the pause. You know, once you recognize what's happening, you have to interrupt. You have to take a step back, take a deep breath, take a walk, whatever it is, 
and then start to analyze the situation you're in, look at what's in front of you, look at whose priorities it's reflective of and start making some hard choices. Yeah. It's interesting you mentioned that pause because what crossed my mind immediately was so many times the answer to whatever it is that is a challenge is pause, (laughs) you know, silence, step back, um, breathe, all of those things that, you know, kind of often go contrary to our plow ahead and take action impulses. So much. And, you know, as coaches, I think we are faced with people every day who are counting on us to guide them into what to do. And I find so often the answer is actually to guide them into what not to do, Mm -hmm. into maybe how to be or how to take a step back from the doing for a moment so that you can actually reassess and put everything in context. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, you started to talk a little bit about um, the next thing that's on my mind, which is this idea of a leadership bubble and feedback. When you were talking about like someone maybe saying to the leader, well, you know, I think something different is important. And you've shared with me that you find yourself often coaching leaders who are stymied by this idea of a leadership bubble, wherein those they work with don't always know if or how to offer feedback to that leader. So they find themselves in that bubble and sort of protected, um, sometimes from the truth. So how can a leader make it clear to others that they are open to that feedback that you were talking about before? Well, for starters, I would say, say it and say it often. But on top of that, I would say mean it Hmm. because I have worked. And I think many of us have worked in situations where the leader says, I am open to feedback. Mm -hmm. (laughs) My door is open. I want you to tell me if you disagree with me. And the person who's on the receiving end of that message never feels the words. Yeah. So it has to be about more than the words. It has to be about creating a culture of safety. It has to be about praising people who do take the risk to come forward with a differing opinion uh, and and sometimes to go down that road or or to show yourself to be persuadable. So all leaders have a compass. All leaders have have instincts and and a sense that they know the way, uh, but it's not infallible. And so if you're surrounding yourself with smart people who have different points of view, the, the reason you do that is because you want those points of view to break through every once in a while. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And um, and I love that you say, like, you can't just pay lip service to it and say, my door is always open and come on in anytime. There's something intangible and energetic that people perceive about someone. And so the invitation to provide feedback, they don't always feel like they can take them up on it because there's something they don't trust. And like you said, a, a culture of safety hasn't been cultivated. It's true. 100% true. Based on your experience, you know, what can a leader then do to cultivate safety? I think it's a few things. I think it's making it clear and, and celebrating the differences and distinctions among the people on the leadership team and noting how they're different from the leader, him or herself, themselves. Uh, having the strength in your own character and security to hire people who are smarter than you in certain areas or better than you were in their functional areas as you were coming up. Mm -hmm. And just knowing that this shows up as a different degree of safety and openness for everybody, depending on how they're wired and what their experience has been. So the most open leaders in the world are still not going to get 100% honest, direct feedback from everybody on their team, because that's just not how people always work. So I've been on the flip side of it with clients where I've coached them into how to give feedback to their leaders when it's uncomfortable, even though it's been asked for. Mm -hmm. And 
there's always going to be some of that discomfort when there's a power dynamic. Look, if, if there's a person in your life who has a direct line relationship with your ability to pay your mortgage, you're going to be somewhat careful around that person. Yes. It's, just, you know, yes. It, it's the reality of work life. Um, so what I like to do, you know, both on the sending and receiving end of feedback is I love the stop, start, continue framework. Mm-hmm. So rather than walking into your subordinate's office and sitting down at their desk and saying, do you have any feedback for how well I'm being the CEO today? You might say something like, is there anything I can stop doing that would make you more effective in your position? Is there anything I can start doing? Is there anything you really like that I need to keep doing or do more of so that you're more successful? And in recognizing that and inviting them to offer that, uh, you're making yourself more successful as the leader uh, by extension. What a great point. Being specific with the request. It's almost like put on your marketing hat because the marketing department would never just go out and say, what do you think of our product? <laughs> Give us your feedback anytime. You know, it, it, generally, they're probably going to be a little bit more specific. How did it make you feel? What did you think of the packaging? How easy was it to use? You know, so why would that be different with leaders in terms of saying, you know, and, and I love that stop. I, I've learned it as stop, start, keep. Mm. And so I love that start, stop, continue is what you said, correct? Yes. You know, red, green, and yellow, same idea. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that it seems like that is much more invitational and sincere. Like you really do want to know. Yeah. Um, you don't want just a, oh, everything's great. You're awesome. <laughs> <laughs> right. Because if you're if you're about to make the big mistake or if you're taking, you know, the direction off course, or even if you missed a shirt button, someone needs to tell you these things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, it strikes me too that something that's important for leaders and creating a culture of safety is uh, humility. And I think you said something a few minutes ago about being open to influence. You can't just say you're a humble leader or even a servant leader. You have to demonstrate that in the way you respond to, like, you know, show, don't tell, that when someone gives you feedback that you are not personalizing it, that you are genuinely interested in it, and that you're willing to consider it at the very least, it doesn't mean you're going to act on every piece of feedback, but at least that you're respecting the courage and the insight that that person shared with you. Absolutely. And I think the good news there is that our varied collection of archetypes of leader is changing and expanding mm-hmm. seemingly by the minute and is much more vast yeah. than it was 5, 10, 15 years ago. So it's mm-hmm. it's not always the you know most outspoken, physically imposing, always knows the answers, smartest, tallest, whitest, malest <laughs> person in the organization, right. uh, you know, who, who shows up at the leadership level and always knows what to do at all times. Yeah. Or at least seems to act like they do. Yeah. And I, I assume you've, you've read um, Good to Great by Jim Collins mm. and, uh, yeah. you know, talking about level five leaders. And how um, that leader that you just described, while that's our often even still our stereotypical vision of the most powerful type of leader, that's not the type of leader that always gets the results. Right. Especially over a long period, for sure. Right. Right. So, um, well, you you alluded to this a second ago, so I want to follow up on this idea of So let's say you're not the leader, but you are a team member, you know, someone who reports to that leader. And the leader maybe says they invite feedback, but there's definitely not safety. Mm -hmm. But you feel as a team member, 
you have something really important you need to share. Like it's vital. It's either going to save the company or organization time or money or energy. How would you coach someone into offering feedback in that kind of situation? Uh, that is hard. And I have lived through that situation <laughs> yeah. as, as an employee, as a leader, and, and as a coach. Yeah. And so I think the first thing to look at is, is, is this your hill to die on, so to speak? Mm. Uh, or are you really going to want to reserve all your argumentative firepower, all your institutional credibility, all the capital that you've saved up, hopefully, in your job by now for something that is bigger and more important? So to hear your description, legal liability, risk, et cetera, this sounds like a big deal. Mm-hmm. And if you've decided it's a big deal, and if the company is going to be headed in the wrong direction, uh, maybe there's going to be big injury or a major loss if, if your advice is not followed, you've got to swallow the trepidation. You've got to practice in front of the mirror or your partner or your coach. Mm-hmm. You've got to maybe socialize the idea with other members of the team who sit roughly at the same level that you do and maybe see if they'll join you in, in making the case. And then sometimes it's just too important and you have to go for it. That phrase, socialize the idea. I love that. Mm -hmm. It's like a way of processing it with other people, getting some feedback in safe spaces and and kind of, you know, you're you're girding up your courage because every time I find at least, especially as an introvert, when I say it out loud, it becomes more real and I get more comfortable with it. It's not enough to just think it to myself or even just to email it. I need to say it yeah. in order for me to really feel solid when it's time. 100%. And to me, this is the intersection of, of style and work history uh, in terms of the, the meeting before the meeting mm-hmm. and, and socializing the idea, getting support for it. One, because I am also an introvert. I don't love surprises. I don't tend to process new things out loud as some people do. Mm-hmm. And I spent some time as a legislative staffer. So I know you don't put a bill on the floor unless you know you have the votes. Right, right. <laughs> you know, do that background work, make the connections, get a sense of whether this is just your brain talking or others are pointed in the same direction too. Yeah. Yeah, come to think of it, I just did that this morning. You know, I'm I'm feeling a little um, conflicted and some internal tension about something going on with a community I'm part of. And I thought, I need to check this out. Mm-hmm. And now to use your phrase, I need to socialize this a bit with someone also in the community, but also someone that I trust, um, who I feel is extremely thoughtful, who I feel is safe and who will do what I ask. (laughs) And by that, I mean, just listen, or give me feedback, or ask me questions, or challenge me. You know, they won't try to fix the problem for me or give me advice unless I ask for it. It's not just socializing it, but it's socializing it with the right person or people. How fascinating that we brought the conversation around here where we started (laughs) about how to get yourself ready to give some, you know, down to earth, really needed advice to the leader. Mm -hmm. And now we're seeking that down to earth, really needed advice for ourselves, our our, our challenge network, as Adam Grant would call it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's all connected, right? And and it's it's a reminder too, like um, practicing some empathy, it can also help in this yeah. situation. You know, if you don't feel safe with someone, you can think about, well, what would it be like to be in their shoes? You know, how would I want to hear this information? Even if you do feel safe, what if it's information that's going to be really hard for them to hear? How would you want to receive it and to look at it through that way and socialize it that way, too, to try it on for size? Yes. I'm all for looking at situations like that upside down and sideways before they're right side up. Yeah, exactly. 
so, you know, like you said in the beginning, you know, people pleasing and um, feedback and whatnot, these are conversations that could go on for hours. I appreciate what you've shared so far. And I want to shift just here as we wrap up our conversation to talking about kind of a different kind of conflict um, than what we've talked about so far. And that is about who or what the conflict is with and how we identify it. So often we get into some sort of conflict and we don't really stop to go back to that pause. Um, we don't pause to take time to ask ourselves, is my conflict with the person or is it with the situation or the task? We've seen this referred to as relationship conflict versus task conflict. What can we do to know which one is at work in our conflict? That is challenging at times, to say the least, mm -hmm. uh, because they, they bleed together. Yeah. Uh, and one can be easily mistaken as the other, depending on the safety of the context that you're in. So my view is that task conflict can be very healthy. If you have, you know, a civil engineering competition where three really talented folks design a new bridge and then the, the county has to pick one, you're going to get a really good bridge out of that process if it's conducted correctly. And the engineers will congratulate each other and, you know, be slightly disappointed and go home. On the other hand, if debates at work start to get personal, if they start to delve into things that have happened in the past between two people or among members of the team rather than what's happening right now, that's relationship conflict and it, it, it can be very damaging. So I think the first task is to figure out what you have. And the second task is to keep tasks from devolving into relationship conflict, which can be tricky in, in environments that are not safe. So you have to have safety for people to be able to disagree with each other safely and then get the best outcome for the group as a result. Yeah. Just as you were talking about that task conflict, I thought about how quickly that can escalate to become a relationship conflict when you say, we're having so much trouble with this project. Um, we keep getting stuck on this thing. I'm so mad at Joe yes. <laughs> um, because he keeps holding us up or he keeps throwing a monkey wrench in or whatever. And so we, without even realizing it, we move from being frustrated about the task to being frustrated with the person. And then we never tease those things apart and ask which is really true. Yes. Or, or start the process of walking back from the relationship into the task. Yeah, yeah. One of my hopes out of this podcast in general, like the meta mission, if you will, is that we don't shy away from conflict or we don't, you know, try to avoid it at all costs because conflict can actually be generative. It can be creative. We need that because if you think about the opposite, that would be everyone people pleasing, everyone agreeing with everyone all the time and nobody really saying what's on their minds. And task conflict, if done respectfully, is essential to creativity and innovation. We need it. Yeah, it, it is a force for good. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's just being responsible and mature about it. <laughs> right. And not conducting the, the, the conflict for its own sake. You don't want to have a, a you know, a Hunger yes. Games kind of situation in the boardroom. <laughs> oh, I think some people do, but oh, no. <laughs> that's not... <laughs> yeah. And it's probably those kinds that quickly devolve into, you know, what could have been a creative conflict around a task to being a destructive um, conflict around the relationship. No question. You know, what if there's, um, like you said, you know, they're often collapsed. You know, sometimes it is kind of an either or, you know, my, my issue is with the person, not the problem, or it's with the problem, not the person. 
But what if it's a both and? Like you truly know this is big. <laughs> uh, this may be something that, that takes some time or perhaps a, a, another cast of characters to resolve. This is where your mm-hmm. you know, neutral third party who knows and trusts both of you might be helpful to, to kind of mediate what's happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, it may also be helpful, as we talked about earlier, to find other points of view into the situation uh, and, and get some different perspective on it. Yeah. Yeah. Socialize it a bit. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. Now that's that's going to be my word for the day. Um, yeah. And and you're reminding us. You know, I think people often think of mediation as something you do when you've got a divorce or it's been ordered by the court. But there's workplace mediation. You know, that is specifically for these kinds of conflicts that can help you resolve it and have somebody be that neutral third party so you can work things out. That's right. A lot of large HR departments have somebody who will be on standby for that sort of thing, or it can be informal even. Yeah. Yeah. And, and and what I would hope, and, and I say this as a trained mediator myself, that just because you have mediation doesn't mean it's a lost cause or you're admitting defeat or that you're broken. It simply means you care enough to take the time and the energy and, and be vulnerable enough to work it out, that you're not satisfied with just living and tolerating conflict. Yes. And keeping it inside for the rest of your days of working together. Yeah. Which is miserable and eats you up, you know, for sure. And isn't it interesting that external conflict and internal people pleasing can both have that kind of destructive eat you up inside effect. Again, leaving you feeling depleted and, and, and certainly on the road to burnout. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anything that we haven't, uh, you know, there's, it's a loaded question. Anything we haven't said that you feel <laughs> like has come up for you as we've been talking that you want to make sure you say before we part ways? I just feel like the theme of all of it is don't feel like you have to take it all on yourself. Uh, help is available yeah. uh, in many different forms and fashions. And uh, it, it's an overwhelming time for many of us at work. Mm-hmm. So take the time, have the pause, find find the help that you need to, to cycle through. Yeah. Beautiful advice. Thank you, Alan. Now, if somebody's listening to this and they want to learn more about you and get in touch, how can they do so? Sure. So anyone can visit my website at peacefuldirection.com. That's the name of my coaching practice. I'm also active on LinkedIn and Twitter uh, at Alan Heyman, and I'm sure they can find the spelling of that uh, pretty easily through your platform. Absolutely. I'll make sure that there are links on the episode webpage. So thank you so much, Alan. It's been a, a great pleasure chatting with you and um I I feel like I say this to all my guests because they are all so generous. Um, But thank you for your generosity and for sharing your wisdom. I'm sure it's been helpful to everybody who's been listening. Beth, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for sharing the microphone and uh, some time with your audience with me. That was a really wide-ranging conversation with lots of ground covered. But as you heard there at the end, there is a simple yet powerful tool that we can use to navigate conflict better. And that's what I'm using as your call to action. Practice the pause. Remember that one of the best ways to avoid or diffuse conflict is silence. I'm not talking about using silence in a way that is angry or withholding. It's not healthy to think, I'm mad at you, so I just won't talk to you and let you suffer. That's not constructive silence. That's stonewalling. What I'm talking about is more around intentional silence that gives you and the other person time to think. It lets emotions settle down a bit so that when you do speak, it's not from anger, but from the part of you that wants to heal the relationship or solve the problem. How long that pause or silence is depends on you and the other person and the situation. 
It might be just a few seconds. It might be minutes or even hours. If you don't want a longer silence to be misinterpreted as stonewalling, for instance, you can say, "I need to be quiet here for a moment and think about this." Tell the other person what you need. It's likely exactly what they need too. And then, when it's time to talk again, remember silence and pausing are also ways to keep the conversation calm and productive in the moment. And I think I've mentioned this here on the show before, but remember that you don't have to respond to everything the other person says, especially if they are upset or if you feel like you're being attacked. Listen quietly, and then decide if responding directly would move the conversation forward in a productive way. And when I say that you don't have to respond, I'm thinking of how often our response is actually a defensive statement. If we're in fight or flight mode, which we often are when we're in conflict, we might use our response time to fight, which can come across as defensive, like we have to explain ourselves or correct the other person. There are times when it's appropriate to say, "I hear what you're saying. I'd like to share what comes up for me as you share that," or "I want to tell you what I've been experiencing." But there are other times when the other person just needs to be heard, and our job is to listen, pause, and then decide what to do next. It's the pause that we skip too often, and that's what I'm inviting you to practice. Give yourself and the other person space. In that space, think about this: Is what I'm about to say helpful? Is this the right time and place to say it? If I want to restore the relationship, will what I'm about to say do that? If the answer is yes, then share your thoughts. But if the answer is no, pause. Tell the other person, "Hey, I need time to think about this," and then come back to it later. The goal might not be to resolve the dispute right then and there, but rather to de-escalate it so that you can have a more mature and calm conversation later. This entire conversation has、uh, brought up for me one of my very favorite quotes, and it's from Viktor Frankl, Holocaust survivor and author of *Man's Search for Meaning*. And if you've read that book, if you're a fan of famous quotes, I'm sure you've heard this before. Frankl wrote. Between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation and decide to share this episode with friends, family members, or colleagues who you might think would find it interesting. I also appreciate your reviews and ratings on whatever platform you find this podcast. And please subscribe and come back for future episodes. I have a diverse set of guests coming up. We're going to be talking about everything from restorative justice to improv and how the principles of improv apply to effective communication, as well as I'm bringing Arlene Koth back、um, from episode 80 to continue our conversation about the language of DEI. So please do come back and be part of the movement to bring more courageous communication into the world. This is Beth Bilo, and you have been listening to How Can I Say This. Our podcast producer is Paul Messing, and our theme music is by Brett Anderson. Thank you so much to Alan for sharing his insights with us, and thank you for joining me today. And I invite you to take what you've learned here and use it to speak up, speak out, and speak courageously. <laughs>